All right, what we're doing this semester in large group here at RUF is we've been working our way through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And uh, you're going to see it up there. You have it on, on your sheet here and just, you know, as thing that's on your seat. And uh, what we've been saying is that, the, that the, basically the point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of what it looks like for a community of people to submit to Jesus as their king. That's basically what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's, it's describing the way of the kingdom, not the way into the kingdom. It's not the way, it's, here's all the stuff that you have to do to get in to be a part of this. It's describing what the life of the community of faith, the community of Jesus is all about. And tonight what we're going to see, another aspect of what it means to be a Christian community. And that is that we become righteous. Let me read it, and we'll talk about it. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments... And teaches, uh, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray before we consider it together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for uh, just the time that we have together this evening. We pray that your spirit uh, would join us and would attend your word and would open up uh, eyes that have uh, perhaps grown blind and would open up ears that have perhaps grown clogged and soften hearts that have perhaps grown cold and hard. And so we would just ask that you would teach us tonight. Would you come and be our teacher and show us once again, the beauty and the glory and the wonder of your love for your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a true story. On a warm Sunday afternoon in 2007, there is a family chilling at the beach of a lake in South Carolina. And uh, it's a family reunion, so they're having about as much fun as you would Maybe you could have at a family reunion. They're chilling. It says that they were that they were grilling pork and kind of hanging out, and I'm sure just enjoying the sun, enjoying the day. And all of a sudden, this man kind of emerges through the from the woods behind them, and he's kind of hobbling towards them in a daze. His eyes are beginning to roll back in his head. He's covered in blood, and he's missing one of his arms. He's not a zombie. This is a real person <laughs> who's making his way towards this family reunion. And now the family reunion is uh, a little bit more interesting than perhaps what it was before. And so he, you know, he falls down. And thankfully, there are a few nurses in this family, I guess, and they help slow the bleeding down. Turns out that he was snorkeling in kind of a little area behind them, and an alligator had bitten off his arm. <laughs> Why Janae thought that was funny, I don't know. But... Alligator 
bites off this dude's arm, and here's, here's where the story gets even crazier. Here's where the story gets crazier, because they call the police, and like the police get there a few minutes later, and they follow the blood trail back to the area and find the alligator, shoot it, kill it, open up the alligator's stomach, and remove the arm. <laughs> in one of the coolers of ice that was at the family reunion, take it to the hospital, reapply it to the dude's torso. Look it up. It's online. True story. You know, it's, on, it's online, so it, it is true. Now, here's why I bring this up. We, we could just close in prayer right here, but here's why I bring this up. The reason I bring this up is because, believe it or not, uh, Jesus is doing something very similar in this passage that we just read. He takes every <laughs> he takes every conception, every human conception that we have ever come up with about how to relate to God, how to connect to God, and he completely tears it apart. He rips it to pieces. Only then at the end to put it back together for us. So here's what he's going to do. He, he, at first we're going to see him completely deconstruct and then reconstruct what it means to actually relate to God. And the way that he does this is he, the, the, kind of the avenue that he goes about this is he starts talking about what it means to have real righteousness. Now I know that is a Christian-y word that can be just kind of completely devoid of meaning unless we kind of define our terms. So let me just define it on the front end. There's lots of different ways that we could describe what righteousness is, but here's how I'm going to define it for our purposes tonight. Righteousness is when you are in a right relationship with God and the result being that you live in a right way. Okay? That's kind of what righteousness is. It means that you're in a right relationship with God and the result being that you live in the right way. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to see Jesus' conception of righteousness. First, what it's not. He's going to do the deconstruction thing, rip the arm off thing. And then we're going to see what it is. The reconstruction thing. He's going to put it back together. Okay, two things we're going to look at tonight. What it's not, what it is. So let's look at first what real Christian righteousness is not. And if you look at this passage... He, he, the way that he begins to introduce this is he, by contrasting it against two false alternatives. So we're going to look at two things that it's not. The first thing that Christian righteousness is not is that it is not irreligion. That's what we're going to call it. We're going to call it, by, we're going to call it irreligion. And by that, I just simply mean the idea that says, well, you can kind of do whatever you want because in the end, if there is a God, then he'll just accept you Kind of no matter what. He'll just love you and accept you and forgive you no matter what. So in the meantime, just kind of do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. That's, that's irreligion. You can call it progressivism, secularism. It's basically just the modern thought of our culture. Maybe there's a God. Maybe there's not. But if there is, at least he's just going to kind of let you in and accept you and love you no matter what. So live your life as you see fit. That's irreligion and that is not Christian righteousness. Here's where I get this from. If you look at verse 17, Jesus is correcting this misunderstanding that people had about him. Because when Jesus got on the scene, he was always talking about grace. Grace, grace, grace. He always seems to be accepting and hanging out with really jacked up, messed up, sinful people. And so people always would come up to him as like, this is crazy controversial. And they'd always ask him questions like this. Jesus, 
Um, you seem to just be kind of loving and accepting anybody, no matter whatever law they've broken or whatever they've done. So what's your view of the Bible? What's your view of, the, of God's law, of the Ten Commandments? Because it certainly seems like you don't care about that. You don't care about rules. You don't care about holiness because you just will love and accept anybody that comes to you. Here's Jesus' response, verse 17. Let me read it. He says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Now, when he says law and the prophets, that's just sort of a shorthand way of referring to the Old Testament. In other words, what he's saying is, look, he's looking at their Bible and saying, look, don't think that I've come to oppose this, just to contradict this. I have not come in opposition to the Bible. I've not come in opposition to God's law. And then he continues, look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, that may sound weird. An iota is the smallest Greek letter in the Greek alphabet. It's like our little lowercase i, but without the dot. So that's when he says, when he says, not an iota of the law will pass. And he says, when not a dot will pass. He's not, it doesn't really mean, the word dot doesn't really mean dot in the sense that we mean dot. It's kind of like that line that distinguishes the capital letter O from the capital letter Q. You know, like the Q's got that little line there. That's what the word dot means. Or the little line that separates the letter P from the letter R, since you were interested in another example of that word. But what he's basically saying is this. He's basically saying this. The Bible is absolutely authoritative all the way down to the smallest detail. Even down to the letter, it's, it, the Bible is in force and we stand underneath it. This is kind of his point with verse 19. He says, you know, even whatever you would consider the least important of all God's laws, it must be kept. So what's he getting at? With verse 17, 18, 19, real Christian righteousness is not irreligion. It's not, well, do kind of whatever you want because in the end, if there's a God, he'll accept you no matter what. It's not what Jesus is saying here. So what does this mean for us practically then? Well, let me speak to those of you in the room that would identify yourselves as people that follow Jesus. Here's what this means for you. This means that holiness is not optional. This means that that obedience to God, it's not optional for you. The the law stands over you and God looks at you and said, and Jesus says to you, you know what your relationship with the law is? You obey it. Period. Now, if you're not in the Christian, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, I know there's lots of you probably don't consider yourself Christian. Looking in on Christianity, here's probably what you're thinking. Uh, That sounds radically oppressive. (laughs) That sounds ridiculous. Why? I mean, I want freedom. I I don't want a straitjacket. Why would I buy? I mean, the Bible just bossing you around, Jesus telling you what to do all the time. That feels like it is a loss of freedom, and and I'm after freedom here. Okay, let's think about this for a second. What is true freedom? Because you and I typically think that freedom is the absence of all restrictions. You know, you get to college, you have complete freedom. No accountability from your parents, from back home. Let's put, let's put 16,018 to 22-year-olds together in a bubble. Give them unlimited access to drugs and alcohol and pornography. And let's let them all live together and give them no accountability. We think that, oh, that sounds, that's a fun social experiment. Um, but that, we think that's what, that's what freedom is. It's the, it's the 
It's the absence of restrictions. But if you think about it, real freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It's the presence of the right restrictions. Real freedom comes when there, when there are right restrictions in place. Think about it like this. Let's say you have a goldfish chilling in its little bowl, swimming around. And let's say this goldfish is thinking to himself, I feel so restricted here in this, this, this bowl here. Look how much more space I would have outside of this little environment. So he jumps out and flops around and dies. <laughs> Here's my point. Um, there is an environment in which the goldfish, is, the goldfish is designed to flourish. Is it restricting? Yeah. But is it life-giving? Yeah. The, the right restrictions that God says, if you want the right restrictions in your life to experience real freedom, real a real environment to flourish as a human being is when you find yourself restricted by the law of God. It is the map to reality. It is the map to a free, joyous, wonderful life. Because what we, what we so often think, we, we think about obedience in terms of right and wrong. Like you shouldn't break that rule because it's wrong. It's bad. It's, it's sin. And that's true. But think about it like this. Breaking God's law is not, it's not about just getting you in trouble. You know, thought experiment with me. Let's say you're out at Roughridge and you're hanging out and you go out to one of those rock, the, the rock outcroppings where you go out to the edge and it's like a 60, 80 foot drop below you. And let's say you, you're feeling a little rebellious and you turn back to your friend and say, you know what? I'm going to break the law of gravity and jump. <laughs> and your friend's like, no, 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 don't do that. You'll get in trouble. A park ranger will come and give you a ticket or something. <laughs> when you break, when you break God's laws, it doesn't just get you in trouble, though it does. It isn't just wrong, though it is. It actually, it, it kills you. It produces real damage in your life. And my guess is with the size of a room this big, there are people in this room that have, know what I'm talking about. I, you know, I, I've talked with enough students to know that the way that this damage that I'm talking about plays itself out in your life is that you just get unbelievably numb towards God. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're just like, I consider myself a Christian, I go to church, I do the RUF thing, but... I'm just kind of bored out of my mind with this stuff. My guess is, partly, maybe, the reason why that is the case is because you are in willful rebellion to God's law. That there's some aspect of your life where you just have a lackadaisical approach of, I know this is wrong, but I just don't really care. And you do it anyway, and as you do it, it hardens your heart, and you get number, and you get number, and and you're number, and... God just gets boring after a while. Because the reality is, is when you break God's law, it doesn't just break some arbitrary rule in the sky. It breaks you. So for a lot of you, you're, you, you justify underage drinking. You just justify over-drinking. You justify and explain away sexual activity with someone who's not your spouse. You kind of talk yourself into that it's okay to cheat in class. It's okay to cultivate hatred for this person that I don't like. It's okay to gossip about this person or this group of people that I don't like. It's okay to overspend. It's okay to overeat. And as we do this, as we always choose this course, the damage and the scar tissue that builds up in our life is just a growing boredom with who God is. 
And God says, look, his law is not put in place to strangle you. It's put in place to free you. It, it is the environment in which you were designed to flourish. When you break it, it breaks you. When you keep it, you begin to experience real freedom, real joy. So don't you say this first thing that Jesus is saying, real Christian righteousness is not this irreligion, I'll do whatever I want, and then God will accept me. It's not that. But then here's where it gets really crazy. Because the second thing he contrasted against is that it's not irreligion, nor is it religion. And this is where it really kind of blows up all categories altogether. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he's contrasting real Christian righteousness against that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were like the religious elite of the day. Spiritually speaking, these guys were varsity. These guys were like the Navy seals of being religious. They fasted, get this, fasted twice a week. Have you ever fasted ever? You know, twice a week. They would tithe 10% of everything that they own to the church down to their spices in their spice cabinet. It says in the Bible like they would like donate to the church their paprika and stuff. It's like crazy, hyper-religious, hyper-devoted. And Jesus says, if you want to, if you want to experience real, authentic Christian righteousness, your righteousness has to be, has to exceed that. Now, how does that make sense? Here's why Jesus can say that. He says, your righteousness has to exceed theirs because what they have is not really righteous anyway. Because what Jesus is saying is that way of life, that rigid, mechanical, religious approach to life is not what he's talking about. Let's, uh, let's just use me as an example to paint some uh, color on this. When I was a sophomore in high school, I had just gotten, a uh, sophomore in college, I had just gotten back from a beach project thing with another campus ministry. And I got back to uh, my campus, coming in as a sophomore. And, I, and so I was kind of jazzed up and hyped up and, and ready to take on my sophomore year. And I had all of these spiritual and religious expectations and standards that I set for myself for what this is what my sophomore year is going to look like. So let me run through a few of these. I said, I have to read my Bible every day. And if I don't, I'll feel guilty. I have to pray for at least 30 minutes a day. And if I don't, then, and if I didn't, then I would have, then I felt guilty. Uh, I had to share the gospel with at least one person a day. And if I didn't, I felt guilty. Uh, I got rid of all of my secular, secular music, and I only listened to worship music. Uh, I, I got rid of my TV because real Christians don't watch, you know, that trash. So I got rid of it. When I could have been praying, I got rid of my TV. Uh, um, I, I wanted to be a missionary overseas because, because overseas missionaries were what real Christians did, Christians that took their faith seriously, unlike all the other peons that didn't want to do that. And I had an accountability group with my three closest friends. And so the four of us would get together every Thursday morning and what we would do, we would basically confess our sin together. And so if, if one of us in the group uh, had messed up that week sexually or had messed up uh, in regards to lust, 
four of us would get up the next morning at 5 a.m. and run laps around the length of the campus as, as a form of punishment. Now, this is, this is sophomore in college, Matt. None of you would be friends with me then. But again, I'm using me as an example of what I'm talking about when I say the word religious. I was religious. This is sophomore Matt in college, religious. And so if you look at it on the uh, exterior, it looked really good. It looked, you know, for some, you know, for those of you who aren't weirded out, some of you may find, oh, that may be impressive, or um, like both of y'all might find that impressive. Uh, on the outside, it looked good. It looked like I was obeying God. In fact, it looked like I was even going beyond that and making up laws myself. Like the Bible wasn't enough. I'm going to throw some more in on my own. It looked like I was doing great, super spiritual. But if you just looked one inch below the surface. Peeled back one layer. Here was going on. Here was what was going on, on the inside. Uh, I was unbelievably self-righteous, unbelievably uh, prideful, uh, filled with uh, guilt, filled with fear. I was driven by how people saw me. Uh, I was overly ambitious. Um, I was indulging in secret sins that I felt like I could never tell anybody about because if, if I, I had to keep up the act, I had to keep up the performance. And so I'm lying, I'm performing, I'm pretending. Externally look great, and yet inside is a complete mess, complete train wreck. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. That is not real Christian righteousness. Real Christian righteousness is not religion. If by the word religion, we mean this mechanical obedience to rules, and yet all the while it never touches your heart. All the while it never affects your inside. So you see what Jesus is doing here. He is first deconstructing kind of every category we've ever thought about. It's not irreligion, it's not religion. It's not, I'll do whatever I want, and it's not, I'm going to follow all of these rules so that God will like me. Okay? Well, then what is it? What is real Christian righteousness then? Well, Let's look at it. This is the second thing. What we're going to see is that this is not even on the map. I mean, it's not even on the radar. You you know, uh, Romans in the first two centuries of the Christian church, they didn't even refer to Christianity as a religion. It was like like the anti-religion. They called Christians atheists. I mean, they knew that Christianity was something completely different, completely off the map. It didn't even make sense. Okay, so let's look at this a little bit more closely. Look at verse 17. Here's where we get the key to unpack what real Christian righteousness is. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word fulfill basically means, you know, to to fill it up, to fill it to the brim. If you... uh, if you go back and you think about uh, the story of Cinderella, remember Cinderella is at a ball and she has to kind of duck out before the clock strikes midnight. And, and because she's at this ball, she's got to leave real quickly. She leaves behind her glass slipper, which, by, which, by the way, how uncomfortable would a glass slipper be? I mean, can you imagine the blisters alone? <laughs> So she's got this glass slipper that she leaves behind, and Prince Charming or Prince somebody, one of the handsome Prince Disney people, finds the 
you know, the uh, slipper, and, and he's trying to find the foot that fills it. So he's going around, he can't find the right foot, and it's basically, it's this template that's screaming out, only the right size foot will fit this. Jesus is saying the law, the law of God looks at you and it's screaming out as this template that says only absolute perfection can fill this thing. And Jesus says, I haven't come to blow this thing up. I've come to fulfill it. And that's what my life has done. My life, my character perfectly fulfills the law and every requirement across the board. That's what Jesus is saying. He's basically saying, I've kept the law perfectly. Now, some of you are thinking... Well, good for Jesus. That's great for him. But how does that affect me? <clears throat> Here's how. If you look at other places in the Bible, Romans chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, you can look at them later. The gospel looks at you and it says, when you come to Jesus by faith, you are given the credit for his performance. He gives you his Resume, his report card of having perfectly kept the law. You know, Martin Luther referred to this as the great exchange. Where on the cross, Jesus is receiving all of the blame for all of our screw-ups, for all of our law-breaking. On the cross, he is bearing the penalty for your law-breaking and for mine. And when we come to him by faith, we receive the credit for his law-keeping. There is this enormous, marvelous Exchange. He gets the blame for what we've done. We get the credit for what he has done. In other words, Christian righteousness is a gift given to you completely by grace, and it's completely free to you. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is receive it. Here's how this makes a Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, when I was in college, I got tickets from my dad. He you know, worked in this... Uh, for his business, we got tickets to the Dallas Mavericks corporate box office, you know, corporate box seats. He gave me a ticket and a ticket so I could take a friend with me. So we go to, you know, the Dallas Mavericks NBA team, for those of you who aren't up to speed with sports. Uh, we go to the Mavericks arena, and we've got these, you know, like VIP badges. And so we're walking past all the peons going to their... There's a lot of peons tonight. We're walking past all the peons going to their cheap seats while we go up to the corporate box office. Shebang! Throw our badges to the security guard and roll up into this, like, suite. And it is an amazing view. You're, like, right there at the court. There's these, like, super big, squishy chairs that you can sit in. There's a buffet of food. I think I had, like, six free Cokes that night. They, uh... They have these big screen TVs. I, I don't so you can watch television. I don't understand while you're at the game. But anyway, we go to this corporate box office, and because I was, you know, other people from my dad's work were going to be there, I dressed up some. You know, I didn't roll in there and like flip-flops and sweatpants, you know, like I, I was, you know, I was uh, representing my dad, and so I wanted to honor him and respect him, so I, you know, dressed nicely, which is not that nice for me. But nobody in their right mind would ever think that my dressing up was what got me the privileges of that night. The thing that got me in was purely the credentials of my dad. That badge was the thing that got me in. Me dressing up was never the thing that got me in. But I dressed up to honor and respect him. And it works the same way with Jesus. You're accepted by God. You get access into heaven, as it were, 
not because of what you've done, but purely on the credentials of what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. So what does that mean for you now? That you just go out and do whatever you want? No. You're representing your father now. And so you dress up, you obey, you, you walk in his ways because you're representing him to honor him, to, to love him out of respect and worship for this amazing thing that he's given you. You dress up. Not as the way of, not for the reason of getting in, but as the result because you already are. Now, before we're done, let me just try to practically work this out for you, what this actually looks like in real life, okay? And then we'll be done. The life of a Christian cycles around two bases of law and grace, okay? Law and grace. Track with me here. So the law comes to you, and God looks at you and says, you have to obey this. So let's just say that you say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to obey the law of God. Let's just do a little experiment here. Let's take one of the Ten Commandments. Let's do the last commandment. The Tenth Commandment is, you know, thou shalt not covet. Do not covet other people's stuff. So let's say that you set out for one day, for one 24-hour period to obey just that one law. Just that one. And then the more that you get into that day, you're going to realize that that law is really getting at not just not wanting other people's stuff, but being absolutely content with what you have. That's really what that command is getting at. It's, it's, it's commanding contentment. So don't want anybody's stuff for one 24-hour period. Here's what this means. You can no longer compare yourself to other people for one day. Uh, no boasting, nor self-pity. Uh, no crushing depression. Uh, no critical spirit for 24 hours. Uh, you can't be jealous or envious of anybody that got a better grade than you in that particular class or got into that program that you wanted in that you didn't get in. Uh, this means that you um, don't need to control uh, what other people think of you for a day. You don't need to, when you're in an argument with someone, you don't need to have them understand your position when you're arguing. You don't need that. You don't need uh, other people to think that you're cool. For 24 hours, just try it. Try to, do, try to not covet Try to just be completely content for 24 straight hours in thought, word, and deed. Now, if you're being honest with yourself, you get to the end of one day of trying to obey one command. And the law should crush you into the ground. I mean, you should come out at the end of the day and realize you're a complete failure. And what that does when the law comes to you and you actually try to... Obey it. It should send you, drive you to God's grace where you throw yourself at Jesus and you say to him, I am screwed unless you're merciful. I've got nothing. I'm a complete train wreck. I'm a complete failure. I couldn't keep one law for one day. This is why Christians say that you come to Jesus by faith. Because what faith is, is being basically empty handed. You're not coming to God and saying, look at all this great stuff I've done, accept me. Nor are you coming to God and saying, well, at least I tried really hard. Doesn't effort count? You're coming to him and you're throwing himself at the mercy of the court and saying, if you're not gracious, I'm doomed. And God's grace comes to you and says, when you, when you come to him empty-handed like that, the promise of the gospel is that he receives you. He accepts you. He throws his arms around you and he reassures you. Your standing with me is not based off of your performance and your law keeping. It's based off of what Jesus has done. He reassures you of his grace and therefore grace becomes sweeter to you. 
Doesn't that, doesn't that, wouldn't that move you if you are actually brought to your knees and you experience the grace and the pardon and the mercy of God, that would become real to you. But the law sends you to grace. Jesus doesn't say, okay, let's just hang out here. What he does is he sends you right back to the law. Meaning he says, now in response to what I've done for you, obey me, live the good life. Here are the restrictions that you're really going to flourish. And as you try to do that, as you set out to try to obey, you will fail, you will screw up, you will see deeper layers of sin than you ever thought about. And then what happens? You, you run right back to grace. And you're assured of his pardon, you're assured of his mercy. And he sends you right back to the law. And round and round we go, and this is the Christian life. Now for some of you who are thinking, this feels like a hopeless, terrible, unending merry-go-round that's going nowhere. But it's not. Here's what this does. The more rotations of this cycle that happen, the Holy Spirit takes your faith and repentance, which is kind of what this is doing, and, it's, and he actually, like a drill bit, bores the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper into your heart. And here's what happens to you. Here's what results in your life. As you keep going around the law base, you become radically more humble. Because you're seeing your sin in a different way. You're seeing that you're way more messed up than you ever thought you were. You're seeing things about you that you really don't like. But as you keep going around the grace base, you become way more confident of his love for you. Way more bold in your willingness to come before him with messy stuff. The gospel becomes richer to you, becomes sweeter to you. His grace becomes real. This is what begins to happen in your life. You become more humble and you become more confident. And what else? You experience... uh, deeper levels of courage in your willingness to obey him. You have a deeper sense of devotion, deeper joy, a deeper sense of worship. You're ferocious about wanting to do what he's asked of you. You begin to experience more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness. You become more relatable to other people. You're more sensitive to other people's issues. People who are really jacked up and people who are really messy can connect with you. That's what real Christian righteousness is. Don't you see? It's not even on the map. It's not irreligion. Do whatever you want. Nor is it religion. This mechanical follow these rules. Meanwhile, all the, what's happening on the inside is you're becoming more prideful, more arrogant, more offensive, more jaded. You, people don't understand you. People don't know how to connect with you. Real Christian righteousness is this. More love, more joy, more patience, more peace, more self-control, more gentleness, more humility. Here's the question. If this is what Christian righteousness is, do you have it? Because you can. We just sang about it in that hymn, Come Ye Sinners, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Translated, all you need is need. All you need is need. And if you feel that need, come to him and freely receive this amazing gift. And that's an invitation for you. Let me pray. Father, would you, by your grace, open up our eyes to the beauty and the wonder and the glory of what it would look like to be in a right relationship with you and and to have our lives radically transformed where we would no longer be so angry, but we would be patient. We would no longer be so judgmental towards other people, but that we would be sympathetic and heartbroken. Uh, We would no longer be so quick to point out the faults of others and ignore 
the flaws of our own, where we would really become a people, a community that, that is humble and yet confident and gentle and gracious and, and yet unswervingly committed to serving you, not lackadaisical, but committed, devoted. Would you do that in me because you know that my, my heart is prone to wander? And so are the hearts of these folks in here. So would you bless us? Would you keep us? Would you, would you thrill us with the joy of this righteousness that we've been given? And would you enable us to live more into that? And that would be our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.